The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and columnist for The New Daily. And I'm James Thompson, senior Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are The, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. G'day, James. Hello, Alan. It's good, good to be back after my week off. Yeah, good to have you back. Good to be back myself. There you go. Um, so did you uh, – I think we both watched – Phil Lowe in the Senate estimates yesterday. Yes. In two hours. It was very uh, – I thought I was – I think I was gripped. I thought it was great. Perhaps, was, perhaps his last time appearance. Time just flew. Yeah, yeah. You pointed out in your yeah. Sean Clear column this morning that it was probably his last appearance. I mean, in fact, in fact, they asked him – they said to him at the end, see you in October. <laughs> and he said, well, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was quite a realistic answer probably. Yeah, well, that's right. Because his term finishes in September. Yeah. Um, and uh, let's face it, there's no way in the world that he will get reappointed. Nope. Nope. Um, and he knows it too, which is, I, I think, I, I thought he approached yesterday with a bit of freedom about him. He was keen yeah, th- to get his message across. I thought he was great. I thought he yeah. was direct, frank, um, you know, it, it was a terrific performance. I was very impressed. Yeah. And I thought most of the questions were pretty good too, really. I was um, yeah, I was yeah. pretty impressed with the whole session. There I don't were, usually watch that stuff, but it was terrific. There were the usual sort of um, uh, opposition attempts to get low to say that the government's not doing enough to tame inflation with their uh, profligate spending, but he didn't buy into that. In fact, he, he, he said quite directly that the government's measure to uh, give people money for electricity bills would help. Was was sensible policy, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah, he did. He did indeed say that. Um, so, looking at the substance of what he was on about, um, I thought the the first kind of ten minutes about productivity was interesting yep. and, and to the point, really. Yeah. And um, as I've pointed out in my column in, the, in New Daily this morning, he was basically talking about a simple, a simple equation that. Um, you can't have 3.5% wage rises or you can't have real wage rises at all, really, mm. unless at, at, at the same time as 2.5% um, in uh, 2.5% inflation, yeah. which is what they're trying to achieve, unless there's 1% productivity. Yeah. Right? So so the, there needs to be inflation of uh, – wage rises of 3.5% minus 1% productivity equals inflation of 2.5%. Yes. Which is possibly oversimplified, but it's kind of the what the way they operate, yeah. what they're thinking about. Yeah. And um, uh, at the moment, productivity growth is zero. So – Well, and, and in fact, I spent the Tuesday listening to West Farmers Strategy Day and Rob Scott, the CEO of West Farmers, which owns Bunnings and Kmart and lots of other stuff – he says productivity is decreasing. Yeah. Well, it has. Over the past 12 months, productivity uh, measured in GDP per hour's worked, mm. which is the main measure, has declined 4% over the past 12 months. Yeah. But that's a bit of a one-off pandemic kind of thing, I, I think. Yes. But, but Rob look, Scott may disagree with you. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. I mean, uh, but over the past three years since the beginning of the pandemic, it's flat. So, uh, and... Really, 
you know, and what Phil Lowe was saying basically, he didn't say this, but it's I think it was clear between the lines that unless productivity increases, there'll have to be a recession to bring inflation down. That's kind of yes, the, that, that, that was the message. That is the message, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and that and 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 some level of uh, job losses. Against that, yesterday's uh, monthly inflation number, uh, which came out half an hour after he finished. Mm. Um, uh, although everyone, all the headlines were six point eight percent, that's an annual figure, and it's and it and it went up from six point three to six point eight percent. Yep. Because the March number last year was really low, and it came out. Yes, and it was and low because of the fuel excise. Exactly. So relief we got. Yeah. So uh, that um, that six point eight percent number is bullshit. Oh yep. Yeah, yep, yeah, it's bullshit. Yeah. So you see the. <laughs> the the, um, the monthly figure March to April yes. was point three yes and and that's down consistently down from last November when it was above one percent with because the, the fuel excess went back in yeah so uh, inflation is actually falling and you could I'm not saying you should do this but you could actually multiply the point three by twelve to get an annualized number for April yes. Which is 3.6%. Yes, at a headline level. Dare I say, Alan, that the trimmed mean uh, on an annualised basis is rising. So when you take out some of those volatile items, I mean, yours is a glass half full view. And, and I, just to provide the glass half empty view, the interest rate rises we've seen have done nothing to hit services inflation and rent inflation. Yeah, nothing. That's, that's true. So we're, so what happens? So what that's happens why now? that's why the low message from yesterday that uh, the unstated message that there'll have to be a recession to bring inflation down was germane. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I think it does. Spe- I mean, I think you're right about your assessment of the the headline figure of six point eight percent. But the fact that we're not making much progress here, some progress but not much, and rents are going to go from. Low said yesterday 4.6% in uh, growth to 10% growth. That means next week's June meeting is still live. Yeah. And so maybe the one after that's live too. We, we've got a question today about housing and immigration, but we can get on to that. But there are actually quite a few uh, questions about housing Yeah. Um, yeah. yesterday. And you were paying attention and I, I was nodding off at that point. So <laughs> tell us. Well, I think I think – it, it just shows the sort of – I call it the rock and the hard place. So Lowe knows he's damaging people with mortgages. So the RBA's estimate is that by the end of this year, 15% people will have negative spare cash because their mortgage their mortgages have increased. Yeah, that was, that was an interesting yeah. number. And the proportion that people are spending on their of income on their mortgages is at a record high. So that's the, that's the bad – that, that, that you know he's he's rightfully worried about that and he talks about the hardship and all that sort of stuff but then on the other side he's got this rental growth exploding with no solution in sight none that there is there's nothing coming to save us on the rental side for I don't know what is it 10 20 30 years I don't know I, I just think this is and I, I think the questions he got on this from the politicians they can feel they can feel what's happening they can feel people's anger starting to say and has and and Lowe said yesterday it's all about supply 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 yeah and he said you can't get supply because of quote unquote vested interests yeah that's great summary 
Yeah. He, he didn't offer any solutions, and, and that's part of the problem. I and mean, we, we've been running in the fin this week a, a, a sort of series on how underdevelopment has, has occurred and basically argues that councils need to do more to get more properties built and stop preventing properties. But, you know, as Lowe says, vested interests, whether they're micro vested interests, you know, a group of neighbours don't want the development to go up or macro vested interests, you know, a council doesn't want to upset their rate holders. That's, that's what we're up against. Yeah. I just, I just, I just felt that their politicians they can feel the pressures coming on this issue, and they're looking for someone to blame, probably. <laughs> they also, they also asked him about PwC, which yeah. was an interesting, which gives us an in to talk about PwC a bit. Um, uh, uh, RBA uses them. RBA uses them, and everyone uses them. It's been extraordinary. I mean, great. Um, you know, it gets a bit tedious with every government department. Do you use PwC? What are you doing about it? But it has demonstrated the reach of this firm into all corners of government and really all corners of the economy. I mean, obviously, these guys are huge in the private sector. They're big in the not-for-profit sector. They're big in carbon and they're big in technology and they're big in cyber. So the brand damage they are sustaining at the moment is pretty extraordinary and um, – you know, obviously they made a big apology at the start of this week. I think it fell pretty flat. They put nine um, partners on leave, didn't name them, and they sort of used this line, well, none of our clients use confidential information because we waited for budget night and then a few hours later we went to them with this plan to help them <laughs> jump around the new tax laws. So, uh, I don't know. I, yeah. I've been – they've had a long time so to get ready for I've this. I've started reading um, – the book by Mariana Mazzucato and Rosie Collington called The Big Con. Right, yep. Uh, how the consulting industry weakens our businesses, infantilizes our governments and warps our economies. Positive. It's, it's a positive take. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hell of a book. Yeah, right. Um, so they, they provide the history of how consultants have taken over everyone. Yeah. And... Uh, the problem is that it's a difficult read. Crikey, it's hard going. This is book. It? Oh, okay. It's it's really hard going. Yeah. Well, there's but, a, great, a great book on the Big Four called The Big Four about yeah. the accounting firms too, which I've been reading a bit of and spoke to one of the authors. It's again really interesting how these things develop over time. Yeah. Well, so uh, um, and one of the things that it's worth pointing out about consultants is that they charge out by the day or yep. by the hour. Yep. Uh, and they and what happens is a person from the consultant comes and works with the with the client, whoever it might be, government yeah. or business, right? Yeah. And that person works with on a project or just works with them for a while. Uh, and the charge out rate is two or three times what that person gets paid, right? Yes, right. Okay, so the margins are good. So the margins are great, but obviously, if the client employed that person directly, <laughs> they'd pay a fraction of uh, what they were paying. Yeah, yeah. So I don't actually get it, to be honest. What do you mean? Why they? What's? Why don't they just hire the staff? Because I mean, why would the staff go to the company? Well, because they could. The company could hire them on the same money that the consultants are paying them, 
and still save tons of money. Yes, but if, That's the, what I'm saying. if the consultant is a partner of the firm, he's he or she is benefiting from every oh, everyone yeah, else's. They're work. not usually partners. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they are. Some somewhere there's a partner getting paid. Believe me. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and th- and this is the interesting thing about these models. This partnership model. It's sort of both democratic and sort of uh, you know influences the way these guys are thinking. Yeah. Do you want to throw your mate under the bus? Do do we want to lose? Do do I the guy in audit want to lose the profits that that guy is making in tax? You know, because that you know they're everyone's cross subsidising everyone else. Yeah, that's true. It's interesting. It, it's it's a Really interesting model, and it's obviously slowing down decision-making. If this was in a company, like, the CEO just would have said, you, gone, you, gone, you, gone. But in PwC, it's like, do we really want to throw our friend who we see at the Christmas party and we see around the office and owns a bit of this business next to us? Do we really want to throw her under the bus or him under the bus? We better – let's just put them on leave. (laughs) And, you know – that just means that this yeah, so these people the thing who, rolls. These people who did the wrong thing at PwC, they're on leave, right? They, do you think it's paid leave? I would expect so, yeah. I mean, this is the thing, this is a great thing at PwC. You retire and you get profit share for the next 10 years or something. So, like, you, you'd, the apple cart is not worth upsetting if you're on the inside. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I just don't know how this – I don't know how they stem the bleeding. <laughs> The, the calls, you know, you got the Prime Minister calling every second day for the list of names of people who are involved. How, how do you continue to sort of defy the Prime Minister? I don't know. I think the, yeah, I think the whole thing's an outrage. Yeah, it's a complete outrage. It's totally. unbelievable. What totally. is going but, on? But I just, you know, there's a big sort of sophisticated organisation. They still haven't stemmed the bleeding. We just Before we get on to questions, we need to just deal briefly with the debt ceiling, which... Uh, yeah, what do you think? Is this Is this done? It like, seems done, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's, if it's got through the House, it's going to make get through the Senate because the Democrats, Democrats have got the casting vote in the Senate, I think. Yeah. It's been fascinating to me that sort of the deal gets done. Now everyone starts to worry, geez, it's a lot of debt, isn't it? And interest rates are going up and, my God, can we continue to afford this? Like, it's, you know, everybody sort of kicks the can down the road, ignores the obvious issue and then goes, geez, that's a, that's a heck of a lot of debt. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the the one of the sort of practical things is they're going to have to raise lots of they have to sell lots of bonds to pay to raise the debt ceiling, and everyone's now worried about the, that. You know, who's going to eat those bonds up? Not, yeah, well, there's not no the Fed. I mean, there's no problem selling them. They're gonna, they're, yeah. I think they're, they're, there's no problem selling the bonds. Uh, it certainly hasn't been up to now. No, no. Um, but the Fed's but been buying them. But they do have to pay the interest on the bonds. Oh, the Fed has been buying them, but yeah. I don't think they're buying them now. No, they're not. So, but but they're going to have to pay the interest on it. Yeah, that's absolutely. the problem. And rates are, could keep going up again. The Fed's it's hard to know whether they're skipping or pausing or lifting. I mean, Stephanie Kelton and the rest of the modern monetary theory crowd uh, say that deficits don't matter, and in theory they don't. Mm. But they matter to the point where you have to pay interest on the debt. Yeah. Um. As we've seen in the last... <laughs> and you can't not pay the interest on the debt, right? So no. that's, that's kind of it. Been a fascin- I mean, it's all stupid theatre, but it's fascinating. So John asks, I'm a long-time listener, uh, love the show. This is his first question. Why aren't we considering asking the wealthiest members of our society to contribute, possibly through a land home tax? 
when we need to bring down high inflation, it seems that those with mortgages and renters are bearing the majority of the burden. This usage of fiscal policy to bring down inflation would be applied only to homes owned outright and would be means tested. We could also allow those who cannot afford it at the time, asset rich, cash poor, to accumulate the amount interest free until the property is eventually sold. It seems imperative to address the need for a more equitable distribution of the burden in reducing inflation. I think John's getting a bit mixed up between uh, government deficits and inflation, isn't he? I mean, uh, yeah, ta- I mean, you know, I guess tax, taxes just go to the government. That's not going to change inflation, is it? I guess the government would could spend less as a result of this, or use that money to bring its deficit down instead of spending. And that oh, would, I see. Would yes, help the tax inflation. the tax would be instead of interest rates going up. Yeah, yeah I see. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I get it. But but uh, so John's really raising the question that um, wealth tax of of oh well, yeah. But the the uh, the idea that was discussed a bit with Phil Lowe yesterday of, of fiscal policy being used to support monetary policy <laughs> yes. uh, to bring inflation down, and and he said, yes, well, that's all very well in theory. Uh, that yes, you could. And possibly should use fiscal policy as a as a means of economic policy, but uh, it's too hard. Yeah, the, you know the politicians won't do it. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. The governance is hard. That's right. Which is a very polite. He way also of said that uh, when it's happened in the past, um, when it's happened in the past uh, with politicians doing it, doing economic policies like that, it hasn't turned out well. Yes, <laughs> which true. is not actually true. Ooh. Well, so I've been talking to Ross Garno this week, and he's uh, he had a piece in the Fin Review on Monday, which I'm sure you read carefully, mm. um, <laughs> which, which was that uh, rather than just having economic policy um, governed by monetary policy, there should be what he calls the full orchestra of policy. <clears throat> so he's saying that yeah. you should bring in everything, fiscal policy, um, uh, trade, immigration, everything should be brought into thing and he uh, so I've been talking to him and he referred to uh, two times that that's been done in the past uh, post-war reconstruction yep, yep. when when the entire force of the government was applied to economic policy under John Curtin and then Ben Chifley okay yes uh, and Nugget Coombs ran the department and you know it was it was just all all guns blazing on, on post-war reconstruction and secondly yep. in the Hawke uh, Keating 80s when they had a, something called the Economic Policy Advisory Council uh, which Ross says and he was involved at the time do tell yeah he was involved and they were uh, they were bringing everything in and in fact in those days monetary policy was not independent the Reserve Bank was not independent yeah. and um, it was only in 1996 with Costello that the Reserve Bank became independent so uh, fiscal policy and monetary policy, says Ross, were combined, and they did it. everything was in, in, included in those days: trade policy, um, uh, you know, currency, foreign exchange policy. Everything was, uh, you know, as we know, they floated the dollar, they they uh, opened up the economy, and it was all done uh, or governed by this EPAC, the Economic Policy Advisory Council, uh, which brought everything under the one roof, and it bloody well worked. Productivity growth was three yeah. percent. Yes, I mean, yes. okay, it was, it was good. Would did Ross pass comment on whether he would want 
um, Donald Trump or ScoMo in charge of the uh, Federal Reserve or the Reserve Bank? No, he Bank? did not. But and nor did he pass comment on whether he'd want Albanese and Jim Chalmers doing it. Exactly. I mean, I mean, uh, we don't have uh, politicians of the caliber of Curtin and Chifley and Hawke and Keating anymore. Yeah. You arguably, I mean, possibly jury's out still on Jim Chalmers. You'd say maybe. I, I mean. I don't know. I mean, uh, I just, it is well, that, it is fascinating a- to me that Hawk anything with the the words Hawk and Keating attached to it immediately seems to be held up as you know. I, you know, I was I was but a pup then, but everything must have just gone right during the Hawk and Keating era. Well, I was the editor of the Fin Review during that period, and. Uh and pretty closely involved in it all. It was pretty good. <laughs> Fair enough. What. Fair anyway, enough. that was a long answer to John's question. Your turn. Rose, love the podcast. We've been approached to invest directly in a startup during their first capital raise pre-revenue. This is totally new to us as we typically invest in companies via the stock market. We see it as a high-risk, high-reward type investment, but love the potential to be involved in a company more directly and support the founder's vision. What general advice would you give to a newbie angel investor about this type of investing? Uh, well, um, after we sold our business, the, new, the uh, Business Spectator and Eureka Report, mm. and I got a bit of money, mm. I invested in five startups. Right. And think, thinking that, you know, the, the deal with startups is that um, only sort of 10% of them work out, one in 10 yep. work out. Or You were uh, hoping one in five. I was going for one in five. Yep. I thought all I need is one of these things to take off and I'm right. And? And all went bust. Right. <laughs> All of them. It was a bust from start to finish. Right. So, uh, Rose, <laughs> uh, investing in uh, one startup is a 10% play. Let's, I mean, yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah. You've got a one in 10 chance. You've got, you got to know that, Rose. Yeah. And I, mean, I this, would, is, this is money you shouldn't, you, this should be money you, you are happy to lose. Yeah. Um, totally. And no matter – you can do all the due diligence you like, uh, you know, and all of the uh, – and, you know, she's talking about reviewing the pitch deck and taking it to lawyers, accountants and financial advisors. You can do all of that. Um, in the end, it doesn't make any difference. Um, this is high risk. Um, most startups don't work. Uh, maybe this one does. And the whole thing with venture capital is that the one that works – Works really, really well. Yeah, and pays for pays more than pays for all the other investing that yeah. you've done that didn't work. The the one thing I'd say is investing pre revenue. So that's before this thing's made any sales. Um, the other thing you can consider is this: most startups need multiple rounds of investment. So maybe you can say, "Hey, come back to us for the second round or the third round," and you can see this thing how it develops a little bit. Yeah. Michael says, I'm wondering how much bracket creep happens. Pretty much no one I know, uh, unless they get a promotion, which probably isn't bracket creep, have suffered bracket, bracket creep. Uh, 45,000 to 120,000 is a huge gap, as is 120 to 180. Given the average wages around 90,000 and mean wages 80,000, and lots of people have no pay rises ever, do they have a percentage it happens to? Is it overstated? Well, yes, bracket creep does happen, yes, because there's a lot of people just below the threshold, yeah. you know. And at then any they one get a, time. And they get a pay rise and they go above the threshold. Yeah. But, I mean, it isn't like everyone on, on the average wage, that's for sure. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, and it's a good question, how, what's the percentage this happens to? But over time, the percentages would be quite large. 
So I it might, in one, any one year it might be low, but... I have something to say about bracket creep. Please. Which is that the idea that you suffer it is rubbish because the whole point of a progressive tax system with tax scales that go up as people's pay goes up is that as you as your pay increases, you pay more a higher percentage tax. That's the whole idea of it. So it's bracket creep should not be handed back. Right. I thought you were um, advocating for the stage three tax cuts as a on a recent show. No, no, no. No, no. no well, look, I, I think that uh, bracket creep, the results from inflation, is a problem and that should be handed back, right? right. Because so, so there should be – the tax scales should be indexed yeah, to okay. inflation, okay. right? Okay, But if you get a promotion, uh, uh, Michael's right, that's not bracket creep. Promotion, getting a pay rise, either through promotion or changing jobs or whatever – uh, that's not bracket creep in my view. Yeah. yeah. That's that's what should happen. Yeah. You pay more, pay a higher percentage tax. Yes. In my opinion. Fair enough. Fair enough. I reckon you can go to Braden's question. Uh, oh, okay, we've answered right. Luke's question on the debt ceiling. Uh, long, oh, you do, it's your turn, isn't it? Long-time listener, first-time caller, this is Braden. He says, should the $250,000 financial claim scheme be adjusted for inflation? According to a quick Bing search, two hundred and fifty grand in 20, 2008 is now worth 370 today. Other items get linked to inflation, so why doesn't this? What a good point. I think that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No. Uh, it does seem well, it's arbitrary. But I get, yeah. Well, it was arbitrary in the first place. 250000 is the same is the same number as the US applies. Right. Um, but this is the financial claim scheme. So this is oh the, the financial uh, claim scheme, right? So this is if you've lost money through a planner or oh, some, right. you know. Okay, so I'm oh, I thought, sorry, I was talking Afka, about the um, um, uh, the the bank deposit similar, similar argument, similar argument. I would say. Um, yeah, I mean, Christ- why not? <laughs> Christine says, last year I paid off my mortgage at CBA, feeling proud and excited to reach this financial milestone. Expected a letter of some acknowledgement from the bank. Nothing. So I called, and I called, and after a runaround, I was given a link to a form to fill out to discharge the mortgage. I filled it out, sent it in. Still nothing. A few months later, I telephoned the bank to check the mortgage was cleared. Yes, it was. Had the land titles office been informed? I was told I had to contact them. This is bizarre. Weird. I have no information or paperwork to indicate I own my own house outright. What am I missing? Well, the first thing you're missing is some sort of like the Queen sends you a – or the King now sends you a letter on your – when you turn 100, surely Matt Common should send Christine a, a message saying congratulations on paying your mortgage out. Thanks I for being totally a customer. Agree. What's the – P.S., would you like some of our next set of products? I mean, how to lose a customer, honestly. I reckon uh, Christine's absolutely right. Yeah. It, and it does feel weird that there's the, – the discharge of the mortgage has – Involves her doing a few things. I'm, I'm not. Maybe that's right. I'm not sure. But these I, days, last I would have time, thought that would be automated. Last time I bought a car, which was a few years ago, uh, they uh, they presented it. They had a big thing where they they had it covered. The car covered. Right. And they pulled the thing off. They pulled the sheet off the car. Wow. And uh, they had a big rose on the front. You know, a big paper Fantastic. rose saying congratulations. Yeah, and right. All this stuff. It was a huge, eff- a huge event. Yeah. So I reckon paying off your mortgage is an even bigger event. Of Maybe course. A, a, and they should. They a should. morning tea in the branch. They should. 
bring you in. Uh, there should be a bit of, uh, you know, <laughs> bunting and, bunting, uh, yeah. you know... Um, <laughs> we might be getting a bit over the top, but I think a, a letter. banner saying, congratulations, Christine. I think a letter is in order, and I'm surprised that the process isn't more automated, I must say. Yeah. So whether Christine's been unlucky or there's an issue here, it's probably worth I reckon the CBA team looking into it. CBA doesn't do anything, and they bloody well ought to. So, yeah. <laughs> Mark says, a few episodes ago during the question portion of the show, you read out a question by a retire- retiree who pretty much berated the listeners for not investing in Bitcoin. That's right. It was a tiny bit disappointing to hear that sentiment confirmed on the show and Bitcoin being referred to as digital gold. Bitcoin's extremely expensive. It's speculative. It's speculative. Rife with scams and pretty much used exclusively for money laundering or by criminals. There's no question here. It's just another rant in response to the rant. Oh, um, I see. Yeah, do, do, do we uh, agree with Mark? Did we, were we too nice to Bitcoin? Oh. I'm making a question up for you. Yeah, us. yeah, fair enough. Uh, oh. Yeah, well, look, it's true that Bitcoin is used to speculate with. That is true. Um but I also also think it's got substance, you know. I mean, it's it's like a lot of things that are used to speculate with. It's also got substance. Yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's a real thing. Um, I, I, whether I can't remember, did I call it digital gold? A lot of people do call it digital gold for the reason that it's a kind of a negative reason in a way, in that it it doesn't have any purpose yes. other than to invest in it. Although, think of it. Let's face it, gold you can at least wear. You can, yeah. but I, I, its utility is fairly limited. Gold, I, I'm yeah. sure Mark would disagree. But, but so the idea is that it's just a store of value. Yeah, same um, with gold. And and the thing about Bitcoin as a store of value value is that it's it's the limitation on its uh, on the size of it or the amount of it is known. Right, there are only ever going to be 21 million bitcoins produced. Yes, and you know how many. Uh, are there and we know the process for creating them or mining bitcoins and every now and again the process becomes harder through the halving uh, of the mining of bitcoin yep which is an interesting and really kind of uh, transparent process with gold there's just, there's as much uh, as anyone can dig up yeah right yeah and there's tons of it sitting in tons literally tons of it sitting in central bank vaults which they could at any moment decide to sell. Yes. So the amount of gold on the market is completely, you know, un, unforeseeable. Unknowable. But I think, I think to summarise for Mark, it is highly speculative. We're not denying that. Anyone who invests in it needs to have a good appetite for risk. And Mark, you don't have to buy any if you don't want. That's it's right. all good. Exactly. People tend to get really angry about Bitcoin. It's very interesting. Yeah. You know. Uh, Peter says, could you please tell me, what the pros and cons are of the first home super saver scheme, if available to your children, would you recommend it to them? Yes, I would. Uh, it's uh, the scheme is that you can um, that you can contribute uh, an amount up to up to fifteen thousand dollars per year, up to a maximum fifty thousand dollars into super uh, for your first home, uh, which you can then take out when you buy the first home, mm. and it's in addition to you know, the normal superannuation contributions that you make. And it's just a way of giving you part of your first home deposit uh, with a lower tax rate. Yes. It's just, it means that for that amount of money that you're saving, 
you're paying tax of 15% instead of the marginal rate. So if your children are on a higher tax rate than 15%, then it's worth doing. I mean, obviously, if you're on a lower tax rate or you're, you know, perhaps on a 20% rate, it's not that much yet. There's not that much in it. But um, if you're making decent money uh, and you're on, say, 45% tax, yep. then 15% tax... Uh, on that fifty grand is worthwhile. Yeah, and I think just generally, any shared equity scheme that helps people into the property market, if that's what they want to do, is worth investigating closely because it's not going to get any easier. And you need yeah. all of these, all of these uh, bits of help are worth considering. Yeah, absolutely. and it's worth pointing out that the that the returns that super funds make tend generally to be greater than the interest you get in the bank. Yes. So for that 50000 you should make 9% per annum as opposed to 4% or whatever. Yes, okay, yep. No, I see what oh, you're saying. okay, 8%, yeah. I don't know. I mean, depending which super fund you're using. Yeah, yep. No, good point. Greg's giving us the wind-up. He's giving us the wind-up. You pick the last one. It's your turn. Oh, crikey. Hang on. I don't know. Uh, Liam says... Uh, I don't get why Australia is pursuing such a high population growth strategy when this is mainly mainly benefits wealthier people. What's your thoughts on Australia increasing its population at a slower rate? Wouldn't this be a more practical solution to address housing shortages? Sure, sure this might create more skills gaps, but wouldn't the net effect of a lower population be better for most Australians? Well, I don't think so. I mean, the, the skills gaps are, are being felt very strongly in healthcare, aged care, childcare, um, you know, I, I don't, you know, and I think, uh, I don't know what you reckon. No, I mean, I think this is a, Liam's hit on the, what I think is going to be the big question of the next couple of years. Like, we're in a catch up period. We didn't, um, people didn't come here during the pandemic. So we're catching up, we're filling some of these roles, but it is creating this housing shortage that is that has big ramifications so is this a painful adjustment after during the catch-up and and will things calm down settle down as we uh return normalize the immigration levels um you know population growth is generally good for an economy um you know it creates jobs you sell more stuff you need more people you create jobs it keeps yeah wages and inflation in check so there are benefits. I think this is a good topic on which to end today. Yeah. I sp- uh, Deanna Messina at AMP tells me that the current, uh, the annualised rate of immigration, of the p- uh, net immigration in the first three months of the year is 450,000, right? Yes. Which is more than anyone predicted, which was 400,000. So we're running at 450,000 at the moment. But Treasury predicts that the immigration will come back to the long-term average of about 230000 a year. Yep. Uh, long-term being 10 years or 15. But anyway, the current uh, rate of building approvals and building starts is about 12000 a month, Yeah. right, which is 144000 Now, it's kind of – you need a house for every two immigrants, basically. Yep, okay. Um, so – uh, if the rate of immigration does come back to the long-term average of two hundred to two hundred and thirty thousand, the current rate of home building is enough. Right. Yes. Right? So we just need to. So yeah. uh, that's the the point. 
Yeah. There's a there, uh, there. Yeah. I mean, the problem is that there is a short. We go into it with a shortage. There was a shortage already. Yeah. yeah. And uh, with with an, with just enough housing being built to house the current immigrants, uh, we're not really catching up. Yeah. Yeah. So there does need to be more houses built, but I don't think that's going to be solved or should be solved by cutting the rate of immigration back to a hundred thousand. I just think. Or 150,000, which is what it was before 2006. Yes. I just think the problem we have now is the retirement of the baby boomers. Exactly. And, and th- this is going to be a long term challenge. Uh, Australia is going to need to import human capital f- for decades because the population's aging at such a rate and we need to yeah. prop up the tax base. And the only, uh, the only kind of counter to that might be artificial intelligence. Yeah. So if we have. Tons of robots, right? Yes. Then we won't need so many people. Yeah, but I think then you've got to – does artificial intelligence get to a point where you're trusting it to do medical care, you know, aged care? I, I don't know. I think there's still going to be a lot of humans needed for oh, that Oh, yeah, stuff. that's true. That's true. So. Exactly. But it's, this, is, this is the defining question and, and the intersection of immigration, housing, productivity is – this is where it's at. This is this is the big thing facing the country. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Money Cafe, everyone. Now I'm on leave for a couple of weeks after this, so um, it'll be someone else next week. Don't know who yet. Let's see what happens. What Greg get organised? Um, if you've got a question for whoever it is, send it to the Money Cafe at EurekaReport.com.au. Please keep them short and sharp. We are inundated with questions, so uh, may not be able to get to them. Uh, so. Uh, for the next three weeks. I'm Alan Kohler, founder at Eureka Report, etc. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. See you soon. <laughs>